Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. As you know, we try to, on a regular basis, speak to authors of books we think are important books especially pleased to have with us today Fiona Hill, whose new book is called There is Nothing for You Here. And I can tell you with 100% honesty that I've read every Trump memoir that's come out. And this is in the top one or two. It is a fantastically well-written book. It does not get bogged down in the momentary hysteria of politics, and it actually offers conclusions for the longer term that are significant. So congratulations, Fiona. It is a real tour de force. Oh, thanks so much, David. Thank you. I've read 30 or 40 of these books. Maybe I've tired of the traditional kind of, I don't know, the Washington gossip side of it or the highly politicized side of it. Maybe I'm just a womp because, you know, the the way you approach the book is what I would expect, which is a great analyst looking at these things objectively and trying to draw bigger conclusions. But, you know, the thing that was unexpected was the human story, the personal story, your journey. And that's also extremely well told. And I think it's where I sort of would like to begin my questions, because I think the surprise for a lot of people who who might read the book is not that it starts out, as you did in northeastern England, as the daughter of a coal miner, but it actually connects that to the conclusions at the end of the book and does so in a way that actually caused me to sort of look at everything that's going on now in a new way. How do you connect the Northeast of England, where you grew up in the 60s and 70s, with the drama of Donald Trump? Well, I mean, sometimes the connections come through, as the book illustrates, personal biography. People you know, start off in one place and end up somewhere completely different, somewhere completely unexpected, sometimes through quirks of fate sometimes with a bit more purposeful intent. And, uh, you know, sometimes, of course, you know, there can be perhaps, in in some respects, no connection at all to, you know, something within your own, you know, personal biography that, you know, kind of brings you forward. In my case, you know, I was born at a very specific time, I suppose people say that we all are, but one in which uh, the environment around me, the community around me was in a state of crisis. I was born in a, a town that had been once a very prosperous industrial town in the northeast of England, in the middle of the Durham coal fields, which is 
kind of the equivalent of the Lehigh Valley uh, in Pennsylvania, for example, or many other of the major coal fields in the United States or in Europe, like the Saarland or the Donbass in, you know, kind of what's now Ukraine, one of these famous areas. And it was uh, the period in which I uh, was born was just as it was all kind of turning on its head when everything was closing down. The whole economy was shifting. And it meant that all the communities, the towns that had grown up around coal mines and associated industries, would suddenly lost their reason for being there in the first place. Some of these might have been historic places, like my own town, that settlement goes back there to the most ancient times. And there's a Roman fort, for example, in the town. But certainly the growth of the town, the influx of population, the reason that the town was there and was such a vibrant town that passed had moved on. And basically, my whole childhood was shaped by post-industrial decline, something closing down, the end of, you know, kind of, of an era, and no hint on the horizon of something new, something else coming in to replace all of this. There's the expectation, and the title of the book is There's Nothing for You Here, is what my dad said to me in 1984, that everybody would have to move on. You know, if you were going to look for opportunity, you weren't even going to get a job. If you're going to sort of build a future for yourself, it wasn't going to be where you were born and where you know, generations of your family had lived. And that, you know, kind of fast forwards into you know, the strange place that I found myself. I didn't really find myself, of course, there was some purpose you know, behind many of the things that uh, I did that led up to my time in the Trump administration. But finding myself at a ringside seat of a president who claimed to speak on behalf of people like me, like where I had been in coal country, or my dad in particular, the coal miners who had lost their job and their livelihood and they wanted it back again. They wanted the lives that they'd built for themselves and their families back again, even though the time had moved on. And he was, President Trump, I was watching up close and personal. I'd gone in to the administration to work on Russia, but really what I was seeing was Trump playing with the lives and promising to speak on behalf of and do something for the very kind of people that I had left behind when I'd moved on from my hometown, people in my own family. Without skipping to the ending, and I'll, and I'll come to some of the intervening bits in, in the middle, one of the things that struck me was all of a sudden I started to see the existence of President Donald Trump and this period of huge division in the United States and this period of the rise of the right and sort of ethno-nationalists and people seeking to turn back the clock around the world, which connects Trump to Putin to Orban to the Polish government to Netanyahu to Modi to Duterte around the world. Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, yeah, I mean, and, we keep and, on going, can we? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's true. And, I, and I, all of a sudden, you know, it was like, well, this is not such a coincidence and it's not related to something near term. It's related to something that's taken place over the entire arc of your life and my life, which is essentially the end of the Industrial Revolution and the collapse of what you, I think you refer to it in the book as the the architecture of opportunity or institutions. Yeah, the the infrastructure of opportunity. Infrastructure. The existing infrastructure that grew up around the Industrial Revolution. Exactly. Right. And there was this sense that, you know, you could drop out of high school, be a high school graduate, get a good job, support your family, whether it was as a coal miner or working in an auto plant in the U.S. And all of a sudden, halfway through the lives of a lot of people, somebody pulled the plug and said, that's not true anymore. 
And that created social upheaval, which created political upheaval, which opened the door to demagogues and demagoguery. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. But David, we're on the cusp of that again, you know, right at this point. We've had the pandemic and COVID, which has accelerated in many respects the next phase, because we're already moving into a period of telework, telework. I mean, you and I are talking to each other, you know, not from our normal workplaces, but from rooms in houses where, you know, we've found ourselves, you know, working remotely. We're now in a, in a virtual world. We're also in a world where artificial intelligence is sort of stepping in or being put in to uh, the, the economic space where we're talking about self-driving cars, self-driving trucks. You know, we're in the middle right now of a distribution crisis, but, you know, kind of in the future, you know, kind of instead of looking around for truck drivers, where we have a sort of shortage in the United Kingdom right now, the economy is breaking down for lack of truck drivers. You know, there's all these memes on the internet about, well, we're going to have to go out there and train more truck drivers until the fact we don't, when we have, you know, self-driving vehicles for all this kind of distribution. We're talking about a green revolution. Moving on, not just from you know the coal, you know sector from from the past that my life was shaped by, but moving on into new, not just renewable fuels, but basically green hydrogen, new kinds of fuel cells, wind and solar. And how then do you train a generation of people to basically construct these and maintain them? But they'll be again on a smaller scale in terms of the labor footprint than things in the past than jobs in the past. So we're about to enter another phase. In fact, we already have with COVID, the, the way that it's affected our work patterns. And we're going to have the same problems that you know I experience and that we've all been facing over these last several decades. So that some of the places that have now become the centers of the knowledge economy or the kind of current structure of the economy will also find themselves not in, a, in the same circumstances that they had previously. Yeah. And you know, if you think of, you know, this is it's kind of remote from the conversation or remote from the experience of people listening to this. And you then think of your father's story and the coal mines of Northeastern England in the 1960s. And then you think of the future of democracy in the United States and Joe Manchin standing as this one vote and saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hold back the tide of that green revolution. I'm going to, try to turn back the clock for the coal miners of West Virginia. It's a direct manifestation of everything you talked about. Yeah, he should be really looking about how we could get some funding and some support for the coal miners of West Virginia to figure out what they're going to do in the next phase and how their communities that are built up around the coal mines, which are very important to their own well-being, the sense of identity and sense of self and their families, about how those are going to you know, be sustained in some way. Because that was what was completely absent in the 1960s when all the coal mines closed around in County Durham and all the way through the 1980s. There wasn't the wherewithal to really help the men retrain. And in 1984, when I left school and my dad said to me, there's nothing for you here, pets, you know, you need to go somewhere else. I went to college on the backdrop of the miners' strike, the biggest industrial action in the United Kingdom since the 1926 general strike, which had brought everybody out on strike. And what was the strike about? The strike was about to, you know, it was the equivalent of Joe Manchin's vote. It was to try to stem the tide of mine closures. It became, instead of a massive clash of the titans uh, between the head of the National Miners Union, Arthur Scargill, and Margaret Thatcher. And Margaret Thatcher got into a mine then to break the back of the unions, to basically finish off coal because it was just kind of battle. It was basically a political struggle 
And Arthur Scargill was, you know, hoping to bring her down instead. And in the wake of that miners' strike, it accelerated the closure of coal mines and tens of thousands of miners moving on from their jobs, but with nothing else to do. And if it had been handled in a different way, there might have been more provision, more discussion about how to manage this transition and what to deal with, what to do to help the people deal with the aftermath of the end of of large scale coal mining. So, I mean, part of this, you know, infrastructure bill, the bills that are being discussed ought to be really looking at the uh, discussions about this, about how do you help the workers in coal mines in West Virginia and elsewhere to transition as, you know, things inevitably evolve over time because big coal won't come back in the way that it did. The jobs won't come back in the way that they did. But the livelihoods and the well-being of the, of, uh, the people, the coal miners and all of their families has to be factored into them, all of this. I mean, what Thatcher did was brutal. It was part of a big political fight and a battle. And, you know, it, she did nothing, you know, to really kind of then think about the miners and their communities. And that was kind of one of the factors that propelled forward into people's propensity to look to populace and also to go out onto the extremes. I mean, I saw in my own communities the rise of white supremacist groups, you know, the kind of equivalents of the sort of alt-right right now, people blaming someone, if they couldn't blame Margaret Thatcher, blaming something or someone else for their predicament. And there was no kind of sense of hope given to people about here, look, here's some funds, some social funds here to help you to retrain and to sort of think about the next phase. In many of these old industrial areas, the care economy becomes really important. Certainly post-COVID, we think we've all seen about how much our care economy needs to be fixed. My dad went from being a coal miner to a porter in a hospital, but he could have been retrained and maybe to uh, become a nurse like my mother. There could have been, you know, more work, you know, kind of got into thinking about how, you know, men from coal mines might start to think about themselves in the context of a new economy. There's no shame in, you know, being being a nurse, being a male nurse, you know, from uh, for anyone, you know, basically moving on there. And I think my, my dad had a lot of regrets about the lack of opportunity to retrain and retool and to do something else. To make an inelegant transition here, you are kind of the foreign policy Billy Elliot. I suppose I am. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I mean, and Billy Elliot was set in my home uh, area in exactly the same year that I went on to college. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It was it was exactly that same drama. Now, you took a fascinating course there of going to St. Andrews University, then going to Harvard, focusing and studying in, in Moscow for a while and becoming an expert in Russia and becoming one of the leading experts in, in Washington and Russia, uh, having written about Putin extremely well. And kind of interestingly, you go from this story of Northeastern England and, and, and these challenges to a life where there are these two big historical figures at the center of what you're doing, right? Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. And how does becoming an expert in Vladimir Putin prepare you for working for Donald Trump? Oh, in all kinds of ways, actually, being an expert on Putin was a very good exercise in preparedness. Because on the way to, you know, writing books about Vladimir Putin, I'd had a number of encounters with him, you know, through my professional life, um, being invited to conferences where he was present, being actually given the very strange opportunity of sitting next to him on a couple of occasions, and uh, having an opportunity to observe him in action. I mean, not really talk to him one-on-one, and in fact, I never really talked to Trump on one-on-one either. We were able to just kind of sit back and watch these people in action and to be able to, you know, figure out how they interacted with people, what the context around them told you about them, 
it was, you know, a long process of up-close observation. And Vladimir Putin is somebody who plays dirty, very dirty. He's extraordinarily ruthless. I've had some pretty hair-raising experiences, not all that are, you know, kind of basically outlined in the book in my time in Russia. I first went there as a student in 1987. You know, I basically the the end of the Soviet Union, you know, through my career and personal experience of long periods of time spent in Russia. I've seen all kinds of things from upheavals and attempted coups and this is sort of like the ruthless nature of politics there. And also just how macho the environment is around Putin. I've experienced that, you know, firsthand as well. There are women, technocrats actually, in the uh, Russian political system uh, often in the legal sphere and often most uh, primarily in the financial sector in the, the central bank. But in a way, they're kind of taking charge of the household, <laughs> kind of in that kind of view, you know, making sure things tick while all of the politics and politicking is uh, is being done by men. And when I get into uh, the Trump White House, that's exactly the same. You know, the women are in the press secretariat, they're in the making sure that things tick while Trump himself is dominating, along with the men around him, all of the politics and the politicking. And uh, the same sort of misogyny that I experienced in and around Putin was, you know, kind of basically probably similar to uh, the same experience in and around Trump. In many respects, they have very similar worldviews. It's interesting. I did make another out of left field literary or analogy. I don't know if you during COVID have found yourself binge watching television series of one sort or another, but one that became quite popular was is called Lupin, which was a French series, right? Did you watch? Yeah, I watched. That? I did binge watch Lupin. Yeah, I loved it. Right. So, so the lead character in this version of it is uh, played by this fantastic African French actor and Omasai. Yeah, yeah, and and his his secret power is that nobody notices him because he's black. Even though he's like almost, what is he, six and a half feet tall. I mean, he and, and fabulous looking. I mean, yeah, exactly. Right, but he constantly plays on that power. And, I, you know, when I was reading, you know, your stories, there was a little bit of that. You know, you're sitting next to Putin. You're sitting in these places. And they're, they don't take women that seriously. And so you listen. You take it in. You become the invisible woman, and and it becomes a source of great strength because you gain a lot of insight and intelligence. I did find it, however, you know, kind of striking that when the two of them got together, talking about that Helsinki meeting, that you felt it was almost incumbent upon you to make a scene to stop it because it was the fawning of Trump had hit. Yeah, the rock bottom. Yeah, he completely debased himself and all of us, you know, by extension. And the and the country, you know, you're you're very appropriately measured in your assessment of Trump and his relationship to the Russians and that Trump is always about Trump and it's not so much about a nefarious plot. He's just trying to get ahead and he kind of admires these autocrats. But that has a cost. And in the case of that kind of a meeting with Putin. The president of the United States is weakening the United States. And, you know, did you ever I mean, what was your concern about what was going on behind closed doors in those meetings where the two of them were alone and the notes were destroyed? Well, I mean, I was actually less concerned about 
some of these meetings behind closed doors because Trump is not alone with Putin. You'd be more worried if he was alone with someone who's English speaking because there is a witness and, you know, it's our interpreter. And the U.S. interpreters, just like the Russian interpreters, are trained by their foreign ministries, by our State Department, they're professionals. You know, our interpreters have probably met with Vladimir Putin more than anyone else, including, you know, any president and sort of senior leader because they're the constant, you know, through president and Trump um, uh, was no different in his, you know, uh, of having an interpreter who had already met with Putin many, many times before. And so, you know, our interpreter was, you know, able certainly to flag uh, issues that were raised. But the other thing is that Trump himself doesn't take notes and doesn't take note of what's said. He also speaks in, you know, very short sentences. And, you know, it's, it's more Vladimir Putin laying out, you know, his views and Trump kind of listening. But Trump's more listening to the mood music. He's not really listening to what the person is saying to him. He's more listening to kind of cues, signals that he's having a good meeting, that he's having chemistry with the person. You know, that actually enables him to be caught out on a few occasions by things that the, somebody like Putin or others would say that would make him complicit in it because they'd said it and he'd listened to it and hadn't pushed back because he had no idea, honestly, what they were talking about because he was never prepared. And that was always what I was really worried about. If he wasn't prepared, he hadn't had his briefing. Occasionally, he would actually pay attention and then he would catch out the other leader, including Putin on a couple of occasions on something he was particularly interested in. But most of the time, he was just letting the other person have their say. And just, you know, kind of letting that all kind of wash over him. And he wasn't able to engage in the way that he would have liked to because he was just incredibly ill-informed. And most leaders would take advantage of that, not just Putin, but many others as well. And of course, it was also about his own personal vanity and how he thought that things were reflective of him, or reflected on him, which is what we saw in spades when he's there on the uh, platform in Helsinki. But it's all about him. It's just, there's nothing about US interests. He's kind of I, 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 me standing here with Vladimir Putin. And even Vladimir Putin gets worried about this. And at various points in that press conference, he tries to throw Trump a lifeline. You know, saying, oh, no, he raised this when he actually didn't. Basically trying to push back on, you know, what he knows is going to be a firestorm of criticism against Trump. Because, you know, Trump is just not even handling himself, you know, particularly well. And it means that any agreements that Vladimir Putin hoped to get out of that meeting are out the window. And, and, and Putin wasn't the only one. Erdogan of Turkey would just get unbelievably frustrated. You know, so would Angela Merkel and uh, Manuel Macron and, you know, others. They would just get frustrated at the fact that Trump just hadn't done his homework and that they couldn't have a meaningful discussion. So not useful idiot. Useless idiot. That's probably what was going through Putin's mind at that very moment, because you could see that kind of little flicker you know, behind his eyes, but his face is always fairly emotionless. No, it's true. It was kind of interesting because he doesn't seem, in the way you recounted also, he doesn't view this as a great triumph. Putin is kind of pissed off. Yeah, and- I mean, Putin sees a great triumph of humiliating the United States, humiliating our president, you know, watching us all, in his view, being brought down to size. But he also wants something out of this. I mean, this is a kind of another point. If you know Putin was really manipulating Trump, as you know some people propose, what was he really getting out of it apart from chaos? Because there were things he wanted. He did want an arms control agreement on his terms, of course. He wanted to kind of tie the United States' hands on cyber and a whole host of other issues. He wanted free reign and all kinds of things. And instead, he was constantly getting more of a backlash and more and more sanctions, which he was hoping to unravel. Because the, the more that Trump debased himself and embarrassed everybody, the more that Congress and everybody else in the whole system was trying to kind of push back. 
Well, and this, so this gets, you know, we're running out of time. And of course, I haven't gotten to the whole impeachment saga, although I think that's been covered well and your insights and your role in it are really significant. But it does suggest that the decision by Trump to use the relationship with Ukraine to advance his own political interests was really kind of completely consistent with narcissism. It was, it was not, I'm trying to undermine all of U.S. foreign policy or no calculus of national security. It was just like, well, this guy can help me. Let's see if I can get something out of him. I mean, is that correct? I mean, is that's that your spot on. That's absolutely spot on. He's not thinking about national security. He's not thinking about foreign policy. He thinks he has a blank slate to do things as he as he sees fit. I mean, remember during the campaign, he said that you know he thought he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and there'd be no consequences. He better thinks that once he's president, he's you know the top dog and he can literally do whatever it is that he wants. He he, he openly says that every president who preceded him was an idiot. I mean, so there's all the time. I mean, even, you know, some of the greats in, you know, what is ostensibly his party, the Republican Party, Reagan, many others are all, you know, kind of flawed in some way. Uh, Lincoln, you know, he always has slightly kind of basically damning with faint praise kind of approaches to or even, you know, some of these kind of great luminaries of, uh, of the past. His whole view is that he can run the country like his own business. And so everything is private. Everything is privatized. It's the privatization, the foreign policy, and national security. He selects people who will go and do domestic, political, or private errands for him. Uh, those are the people that he wants to have close. And he kind of disparages all of uh, the permanent staff of every institution in the United States government. They're all deep state coup plotters or unelected bureaucrats. I was recently called by him a deep state stiff, albeit with a nice accent, you know, when he kind of somehow got to his attention. You know, I've been out and about talking about this uh, book. So for him, everybody else is fairly meaningless. Everybody is his staff and information trickles down from him to the rest of the system. And it's basically the stage is his to stand on alone. And we've seen so many times where, you know, he's taken control of all of the space during the COVID pandemic on the task forces when that wasn't really supposed to be his role, you know, to stand up and speak. And then the terrible episode where he talks about injecting bleach because, again, he hasn't taken any briefing on anything. I mean, time and time again, he demonstrates that he, he's just kind of winging it, that he, he finds the statecraft boring and uh, doesn't really see the point of it. Yeah. No, it comes through. It comes through a lot that, you know, where a lot of people are looking for, you know, an evil mastermind, you have somebody who's essentially kind of stupid and kind of selfish, impulse driven, not plot driven. But, but, but he's not stupid in terms of his feel for politics in the slightest. I mean, he's a very canny, very savvy and clever retail politician. He knows what makes people tick. He knows how to push people's buttons. I could be saying the same thing about Vladimir Putin here. Trump knows how to manipulate people, either through bullying and intimidation or cajoling or, you know, kind of basically through the force of his personality. I mean, for many people, he is charismatic. He's their avatar in, you know, kind of a life they would like to lead. He's their champion. He speaks their language. He's performing for them. He's entertaining them. You know, so he, he's very clever about that. He can outmaneuver most people. I mean, we saw it all the way through the primaries and the Republican Party. And then he outmaneuvered Hillary Clinton. I mean, literally maneuvering around her 
at different points during debates, you know, to intimidate her or to kind of, you know, show that he was, again, the top dog strutting around. People love those displays. I mean, the voters, you know, not all of them who voted for him, because I think there's a, a, a mixture of motivations for voting for Trump, but many of those who turn up at his rallies, you know, they, they projected themselves onto him. They won't basically accept any kind of criticism of him because he's the kind of screen on which they're projecting also their hopes and aspirations and their like desires to, you know, give a stiff middle finger to all the people they think are sort of standing in their way or pushing them back and constraining them in some fashion. Yeah, I probably should have used the term ignorant because of that probably captures yeah, more. But, 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 he, but he is, you know, ignorant of the system of government because he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to take the time to learn it because he doesn't think he needs to. I mean, he was trying to basically dismantle the state or govern, rule, and scums himself in power in spite of the state. He didn't want any checks and balances. He thought he could basically run America just from the Oval Office. Well, and one of the interesting punchlines of all of this, and I think one that's perhaps even lost on a lot of Americans at this point, one that I've come to this conclusion and, you know, I got to talk to you for doing the book that I'm doing, is that the system actually worked in a lot of ways. People within the system work. You turned out not to be a deep state stiff. You're a deep state hero. At least here at Deep State Radio, we like to think of deep state uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but within a few weeks of the July meeting in which he has the phone call with Zelensky and the whistleblower reports getting to Congress and Congress begins an investigation, Trump stops withholding the money for Ukraine. The money actually gets through. Yeah. The impeachment starts. There is oversight. He can't continue in that vein. He did a lot of damage, but a lot of people like you kept him from doing much more damage. And I think one of the reasons that reading your book is so important is it shows how we get there. But as I indicated at the outset, the reason I recommend it to everybody who is listening here is because it doesn't just do that and tell it in a lively way. You'd never lose your sense of humor throughout this thing. But it puts it in a historical context and actually adds to our understanding of how we got to this moment. And I I very, very much hope that everybody gets the book and reads the book. You've become not just an interesting accent, but a, a fantastic voice out there, a really important one. And so I thank you for joining us here for this discussion. I encourage uh, everyone to go out and get a copy of the book, however you consume a book in paper or in audio, and um, you will learn a lot. You will not regret it. For more about what we've got going on, go to the dsrnetwork.com and see what we've got going. And if you like what we've got going, click on membership and support what we're doing. In the meantime, thank you very much, Fiona Hill. Congratulations on a real masterpiece. There is nothing for you here. And um, perhaps we can have you on again some point in the future to talk about other aspects of this. That would be great, David. I'd love to. And thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thank you very much. And everybody out there, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.